The time will come when the human race will have to face itself in the mirror and decide what it is to be human. They will have to make a choice. They will face their greatest enemy, an enemy that stops at nothing, listens to no one. They will have to fight for their survival. Nothing is beyond its depraved and immoral intention. It takes many forms. It kills, maims and destroys without remorse. It cannot be understood. It cannot be reasoned with. It cannot be defeated when it is fought head-on in the battlefield. It seeps and writhes its way through society, leaving husks of humanity where once there were people. Men, women, children, all are prey to it. But in the future, the people of the world state that enough is enough. If blood is to be spilled, then it has to be worth the sacrifice. It has to be with the intention of the total and utter extermination of the enemy. All means, laws, powers and weaponry are at their disposal. Nothing must stand in their way. They are the saviors of the human race. They are the destroyers of the enemy. They are the Faith Seekers. The Faith Seekers by Greg James. Available now on Amazon and Lulu, paperback or ebook. Download it now. There are a thousand ways to die, and the faith seekers know them all. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelization. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and with a wheezing, groaning sound, We'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is David in Chelmsford. And this is Greg in Swansea. Now this week we're going to try something different again, aren't we? Because we're going to reminisce about an old Doctor Who episode. I say old, it's actually from 2012. And the reason we're doing it is because it's become very topical. The episode we're going to look at is called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, written by Chris Chibnall, who's about to become a very big name in the Doctor Who world. And also the episode guest stars an actor called David Bradley, who will be on our screens again this Christmas. Now, Greg isn't terribly well this week, so my grateful thanks to him for soldiering on. And my first question is, what did you think of the episode? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because unlike with classic Doctor Who, um, the new ones I very, very rarely rewatch. I like to see them um, on TV. I mean, we, we've watched a few together, and we did when we reviewed them and so forth, but that's really unusual. Now, I've never seen this one since the original transmission. Mm-hmm. So I watched it about uh, an hour or so ago, and it was quite strange to see Matt Smith and the different titles and so forth again. I'm I'm struggling a little bit because... About two-thirds of the way through, I became so bored and distracted, I actually decided to try and find my favourite copy of Shakespeare's sonnets on my bookshelf. (laughs) So I don't know if that's a good sign or not. It's not something I usually do in Doctor Who, David. No, if it drove you to read Shakespeare, then I think there's much of merit in the episode, surely. Well, that's a very positive spin you put on it there, David. I think we should get a job in the government there. They could do with you. Um, I, I, no, I think, let, let me say this. With the opening of it, 
Hmm. Um, Matt Smith came across as um, he's so fast and frenetic, hmm. and I was really enjoying that, you know. And his hmm. his face is so angular and alien, wasn't it? And we had a few lovely close-ups the director got of his face, and I just, I, I realised, you know, gosh, you know, I, I do love Matt Smith. His, mm. But I I felt, you know, he's such a world away from Peter Capaldi that uh, it took me by surprise for a, for a while, you know. It took mm. me a little while to get back into it. If I can go back to my memories of first seeing Dinosaurs on the Spaceship, I don't know how you felt at the time, David, but um, I, you see, this was one of the reasons why I must admit when they said that Chris Chibnall has taken over, I, there was a sense of trepidation in me. And the reason, yeah, the, the reason is when, um, uh, when Stephen Moffat was announced that he was going to take over um, as producer of Doctor Who, he had a track record, and his track record in Doctor Who was absolutely first rate because the stories he'd written had tended to be the standout stories of the season to some extent. Whereas my experience of Chris Chibnall was, and the first one we had was it, was it the, the Cold Earth? No, I'm trying to think, what was this Silurian one? Was it called The Hungry Earth? The Hungry Earth. And then Earth. it was followed by Cold Blood. Cold Is that oh, true? I, that's true. I transposed both the titles there, didn't I? Yes, the Hungry Earth. Yes, his first one was called Forty Two, and I think that was a David Tennant one. Oh yes, was it really? And then he that. did the Hungry Earth and Cold Blood in two thousand and ten. Oh, Dinosaurs right. and a Spaceship two thousand and twelve. Power of Three two thousand and twelve. Do any of those stand out to you as being anything other than very, very average Doctor Who? The fact I can't remember them isn't a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, out of the ones I've read out, I would say that Dinosaurs on a Spaceship is the standout story. Right. I think right. I went to sleep during The Power of Three, so I possibly yeah. haven't even seen that one. Yes, yeah. But, the, um, the Power of Three, um, I actually watched um, Sitting by Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker. Really? Anna, yeah, at a Regenerations in Swansea right. convention. And they joined us to watch it. And we were really, it was thrilling. It was lovely to have them there watching it, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember thinking at the time, you know, oh, I could have been a better one than this for to watch them. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I wasn't a big fan of these. So as I say, I'd forgotten dinosaurs on a spaceship. Um, I, I I remember at the time thinking, now is this going to be derivative? Because of course it's the, um, you know, what was it? Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a plane, yeah. Yeah, that was the big thing at the time. Or is it just going to be a fun uh, sort of a, a, a little reference to it? Mm -hmm. And I think it was a bit of both. Obvious, well, I say obviously, but the dinosaurs themselves aren't, the key strand of plot are they no. they are just something that's been put there because either the writer or the head writer thinks it would be great to have dinosaurs on a spaceship and it's also good to realize dinosaurs in doctor who perhaps more effectively than the classic series was able to do mm. when you think about i mean we spoke about it last time when we spoke about the cave monsters and the tyrannosaurus rex that features yeah. in there and um, that's not particularly impressive on screen but then it's 1970 yeah, and of course yeah. everybody's bogey story being invasion of the dinosaurs when the dinosaurs were sort of along there what was he called ray harry housen yes ray harry housen yes. the, the stop motion version for the time i guess that the people would have been thrilled by those dinosaurs I was thrilled when well, I remember seeing it on first mm. transmission and um, I loved it. And when they went through the Stegosaurus's legs in the Jeep. Oh, and, yes, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved it, you know. I, I will say the, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex part, you know, which was, if it was a Tyrannosaurus Rex, because even an eight-year-old child wrote into the Radio Times, didn't need to say that, They've got all the, um, the the anatomical details incorrect on the Tyrannosaurus. Right, right. How embarrassing is that, isn't That's it? That's you know? bad, and, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was an awful 
puppet, you know, and seeing it now on, on the lovely cleaned up DVD release that, that they did of it, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it's quite quite embarrassing a lot of it, uh, but, yeah, but I, I still I, love it. And yet it. the story was masterful. Absolutely, David, you know, absolutely. I, I, was, I actually made a note in this saying very nicely realized um cgi dinosaurs in this you know they look they look lovely especially in close-up um the detail and the texture on their faces you know it's it's really high quality stuff however they still i thought looked obviously cgi and placed in there when they were walking about i felt did you did you feel that i don't want to burst your bubble here but the close-ups of the triceratops yeah. I got the distinct impression that that was a prop oh. rather than CGI'd. But the oh. movement of the Triceratops is definitely CGI'd. Yes. But I've got oh. the feeling that it was a fusion of CGI and physical model. Oh, so nice. so that they've sort of built the front of it so the actors can sit and ride. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, but that's why a, they look so good. But I mean, there was a completely the same scene in Jurassic Park. Wasn't there when when they had yeah. the close up of the Triceratops face, and of course when Jurassic Park came out, CGI was in its infancy. Yes, and I distinctly remember somebody phoning up a radio talk show in a great big huff because this person's point was: look, if they can breed dinosaurs for a film, I'm pretty sure they they can sort out this trivial problem, whatever was going on in the world at that time. So it just shows if you. If you do it well, you can yeah. sell the idea that you've created dinosaurs. Yeah. And yeah. I think this did. I I, I yeah. believe that there were dinosaurs on that spaceship. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I thought the, the, the is it the tectodactyls? I can't say it. I wouldn't know what they were, but the ones on the beach. Yes. The ones on the Vale of Glamorgan. That's it, yes, that's the one, yeah, that's it. And, um, it, it, I mean, they look great. I mean, I have no uh, question, you know, of the, the quality of the, the workmanship going into that. They look, they were beautifully realised, you know. It was, uh, you couldn't ask much more. And I, I remember actually being rather thrilled when the dinosaurs on a spaceship episode was shown because I was like, oh, isn't Doctor Who great now? They've got lovely dinosaurs and they look so good. And they did. But for me, you hit the nail on the head, David, when you said, even though we had some dreadful puppet ones in the Purwee era, the, the, the dinosaur invasion script was wonderful. I agree. It was a very high quality story. Mm, I, yeah. I do agree there. Now, the word you used earlier was fun, and you've hit the nail on the head, because from that pre-credit sequence at the Indian Space Agency, it's obvious that this is going to be a romp of an episode. Mm. And the fact that the Doctor's assembling his own gang, and he's never had a gang before, and he's really excited about it. I and love he's got that. Queen yeah. Nefertiti, for crying out loud. And this brilliant. is brilliant. Yeah. As Loved part of his it. gang, it was sort of reminded me a bit of that um, film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where a load oh, of literary yeah. characters are knocking around as a gang. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, I agree with you completely. I mean, you know that it's it was a romp, wasn't it? You know, and it was great. And I I have to say something that stood out for me was the characters and the situation. You know, Queen Nefertiti, and uh, you know, you had the the hunter. What was what was he was called? John Riddell. John Riddell. He's a British big game hunter, and he's obviously fictitious. Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. And I just thought I loved that. And when, of course, you know, you you said the line there, "I've got a gang now," or something like that. He says, mm, he? "Never had a gang." It, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was great. It was. Re- I loved all of that. Yeah. So it was Matt Smith, you know, acting superbly. We had. I I loved Queen Nefertiti. I thought she was really good. Um, she looked beautiful. She looked the absolute part. I think you know, if we if we were to see her. But yeah. she was a strong female in Doctor Who. Because yes. you've got to remember, these were the bad old days while the Doctor was still male. Oh, it's it's yeah. nice to sort of look back on them and think, wow, he's still a bloke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but there was a strong female character, and obviously the Pons are in this as well. Yeah, yeah. The Pons are in, and 
Right. I, I liked all the domestic scenes. I loved the fact that we actually met Rory's dad. Yeah. So it was an extension of the family. I mm. thought it was very skillful casting Mark Williams as Brian oh. Williams. I mean, he had the same surname. That yes. was a good touch. And the fact is, Mark Williams is a great actor. Yeah. He's fantastic yeah. and a real yeah. asset to whatever he participates in. Well, he dropped that light bulb with real aplomb, I thought. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought that was He great. played was... a character in Shakespeare in Love who did the opening sonnet. Oh. And he, he was a stutterer. He thought, is he going to be able to say it? Is he going to be saying it? And the audience were laughing at him because he couldn't say the original words or he couldn't start the speech. And then he gets on a roll and it's oh, brilliant. I love Shakespeare really? in Love. Oh, and I like yes, his w- contribution to it as well. Yeah, it's I've, a wonderful film. Mm, I mean, Tom Stoppard. Tom, yes, Tom Stoppard came out of retirement to write that script because mm. he was sort of semi-retired. So, and I suppose what Mark Williams is most famous for is The Far Show. Yes, Which absolutely. I also really liked. Yeah, me too. Lovely. I mean, he's a he's a great actor. He's a great character actor as well, and uh, it was lovely to have him there. And and I, I say all the way through this film. What's um sorry, not through the film, through the episode. What struck me was the quality of the acting and the actors was first rate. Because as I say, we we get now to David Bradley, that first reveal of him lying ah, in the bed. Yes, oh, I remember. You think he knows the doctor, don't you? Because he's saying, yeah. doctor, doctor, bring him. Yes. And, it, and it's not. You think, oh, this is an old enemy. He's yeah. heard the name and he's out for revenge. But, of course, what he actually wants is a surgeon to mend his legs. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's great. He's, he's got real presence, isn't he? Real presence. I you see, I, I, yes, I truly like David Bradley as an actor. And... I don't say this to belittle him in any way, but he's always tends to play characters older than his true age, particularly in his early career. And for that reason, he's always been in work. It delighted me to realise he was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, I went to see uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, 1992-93. And David Bradley was in that and he played Polonius. I bet he was a great Polonius. He, he was a great Polonius, but again, you know, he would only have been, what, 50? In his, he'd be probably been about as old as I am now, and he was playing Polonius. Wow, yeah. That's so sweet. It's all, in, in a way, it's almost William Hartnesque, really, isn't it? It's uh, mm. like William Hartnell was playing the character of the Doctor, and he was actually much younger. That's fascinating. I, I, and I say, I remember... Because people, I, I will say at the time, I wasn't familiar with, with um, David Bradley. But when I heard the reviews and so forth and the people saying he's such an, an actor of such quality, I thought, well, I'll keep a lookout. But I didn't need to. It was all there to be seen on the screen from that first moment when that camera panned across and his voice came up. I thought, oh, this is he's good. This is really good, you know. And, and in fact, I... I, I felt, and I felt it again today, that really he was a bit out of place because there was this romp going on mm. around him and I mm. thought, he's too good for this. He shouldn't be in a, in a romp, <laughs> you know. It's like this man is here, he's got real menace and threat and presence and this story should be deep and dark and scary, you know, and uh, because... Some of the some of the scenes in that they they went abruptly from a wonderful performance by David Bradley into some rather silly little um, silly little side scenes. Uh, I mean, when when, when um, Matt Smith's doctor first meets him, and uh, they are talking there, and we've got this bit where. He's, I think he says, um, I don't like to be threatened with violence, you know, and he says, and I don't like to be asked questions. And the Matt Smith doctor, that, that, we have that lovely scene where he turns close to camera, and that's great and threatening. And then it suddenly goes to um, these robots, which I haven't mentioned as yet, <laughs> but these robots, um, oh, they just ruined the whole sense of, 
of uh, you know of threat in there. I just thought, do you, what did you think of those robots? Well, those robots, as you call them, were none other than Mitchell and Webb. And I love them. I love, I, I love Mitchell I, and Webb. Yeah. I, I do love them. But the, as the robots, they they were rather camp and bickery. <laughs> I, I really thought, I, I love Mitchell and Webb, I, I, I do, and I, I think um, they both have such, um, such a high calibre, you know, in the work that they do, you know, I really admire them. And of course, once I knew they were going to be playing uh, in this story, the, the tension builds up because it's going to be great, you know, and then in come these two robots with silly voices, which could have been great, but it wasn't. And that's the thing, because... The first thing I thought was, what a cheap derivative ripoff of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Really? Really? Yeah, I, I did, you know, and I just thought, the minute I start, and this was the problem I had with this script, was I thought derivative at the beginning, when I heard about the dinosaurs in the spaceship, but I was hoping, as I said earlier, just for, you know, some little references for a bit of fun, but right throughout it, I'm, I'm afraid I felt derivative, derivative, time after time. These robots were hitchhikers. Um, it was just, oh, I, 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 I did feel so disappointed with it. And I genuinely felt, um, as I say, you know, I, I was looking for my, my favourite copy of Shakespeare's sonnets because it just occurred to me. Well, you know, sort of about two-thirds of the way through, I was getting rather bored with this and not at all interested. And I just remembered some sort of line, and uh, I just thought, where's my favourite copy? And I spent about ten minutes shuffling about on my bookcase, and uh, eventually I found it. And it's um, the Poetry Bookshelf copy, and it's quite old now. And um, I really love that copy, and I just thought, I'm going back to this. I've gone back to it time and time again. I never want to go back to this story. <laughs> I just thought, isn't that, isn't that, it's sad, isn't it? Because we've mentioned it before, you know, with classic Doctor Who's, we've watched them over and over and over again. And, you know, I would still think, oh, I feel like watching this story now or that story. But there was nothing in Dinosaurs in the Spaceship that made me want to go, oh, I want to go back and watch that. I want to feel, even if it were one, which, which is a romp, there are plenty of romps in the in, in the classic who, but I, I, you know, I know I sound so negative. And please mm. write, write in, email us, tweet us. You know, send us audio feedback and chastise me, you know, but um, I, I can't help feeling this way about it. No, I'm not, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. Right. <laughs> Without a shadow of a doubt, Solomon was one of the nastiest, most vicious villains that we'd had in Doctor Who for years. He mm. was brilliantly malicious. Yeah. He was unscrupulous. Yeah. He mm. inflicted pain so lightly on those around him. Yes, the comic counterpoint of his nastiness were the Mitchell and Webb robots, who were actually pretty nasty creatures themselves, although they did have a very throwaway, funny delivery. They they were not missed when they got their comeuppance, none of them. And it took me a very long time to warm to Matt Smith's Doctor. And I think that this is the story where I was finally able to accept him. And I'll tell you for why. Because of the way he dispatched Solomon. Oh. It was that, do you, now, we, we often mention him because we miss him so much, but mm. do you remember in the late 70s, Roger Moore did, uh, mm. he did uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and he did Moonraker, mm. and these were, these were films that were coming out when we were both fast approaching 10 i imagine yes and yeah. and and i loved them for different reasons but i thought no 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 this james bond is not vicious enough he's not a killer he's not he he doesn't have the mm. edge that sean connery had and yeah. then in 1981 we got for your eyes only which was a conscious effort by the producers to try and channel some of the more traditional fleming-esque Bond story and um, behaviour back into mm. the series. And there's a bit in there where there's an assassin called Locke and he hasn't even killed anyone James Bond is fond of. Yeah. But he's escaping in that car 
and Sir Roger climbs up multiple staircases, running, 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 up, 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 up the side of a mountain. And he finally gets to the top where the car is going to meet him and he stands there, he adopts a shooting position and he fires through the windscreen hits Locke, whose car skids off, goes through a brick wall, and you mm. think, oh, that's enough, Roger, you've been mean enough. But yeah. no, Roger finds him still alive, or Bond finds him still alive, because it wasn't really Roger, he was acting. <laughs> Bond finds him still alive, and he throws the pin in that, that he's found on his associate's body, and he kicks the car over the edge. Ooh. And I thought, yes, he's finally yeah. morphed into the killer. Yes. And that very, very long story was my way of saying this is the point where I felt that Matt Smith grew up and became capable of committing not so much. Well, it is. It's an act of revenge. Mm -hmm. No two ways about that. Solomon is not a nice person and he deserves a nasty death. Mm. And the doctor gives it to him in spades because mm. the doctor sets those missiles on him deliberately, <clears throat> knowing what he's doing, possibly knowing that there are other choices. But I just thought, yes, this is so doctorish. Although the doctor's a pacifist, he can be pushed too far. That's really interesting, David, because I remember at the time it was quite controversial, that scene, wasn't it? There was there was a bit of a there was a bit of a hoo ha about it that people said oh the doctor shouldn't do things like that he shouldn't exact mm. revenge but we saw it with David Tennant in mm. the um, family of blood you know, the family of blood and we saw it here and it was interesting actually that it took this scene for you to accept um, uh, Matt Smith because I had the same problem uh, I love David Tennant so much. I thought I cannot take to him. And I, and I think I was purposefully um, with his first few stories, because I think his opening story is actually utterly superb. But yes, I agree. I, the 11th it, hour is great. It's great, isn't it? But I wouldn't accept it. I was being a bit mean and nasty because I wanted David Tennant. And I think it was only a bit <laughs> later on that I thought, Oh, begrudgingly, you know, I thought, oh, actually, he was great in it, you know. But um, so I, I think... It's interesting because I had the same experience, but it wasn't that that, um, that 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 point there that I turned to really like him. I think the comedy, the comedic side of him started to um, make me feel a little more, you know, uh, in tune with him. I started to think, I do like your comedy because I know he channeled what he loved about Patrick Troughton. right. And um, I started picking up and thought, you know, you're, you're really funny and quick, actually. I, I rather like that. So it's interesting. Dif- so different aspects that pull different people into into liking him by the sound of it. Mm, I, I agree. I mean, looking at season five, it has its moments. But as you mm. say, we're still upset that David Tennant's left. Yeah. Season six, I came very, very close to opening the Blu-ray set of that the other day. And then I thought, no, I can see nothing of merit in here. It was, um, I would say, the least, well, in my household, it was the least successful of all New Who seasons. I quite like the one about the black spot, but apart from that, I I saw very little of merit. And obviously Matt Smith's stock was quite depressed after those shenanigans in The Impossible Astronaut. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think the straw that broke the camel's back for me was Let's Kill Hitler which I oh. think is halfway through that season. In hindsight, he, he learnt a very serious lesson in that, which is never accept regenerations from a lady. Because oh. then, you see, you get the you get lady regenerations henceforward. Oh. But, oh no, he didn't think <laughs> about it. He thought, I so want to get over the poison. I'll take, yes, Riversong, give me your regenerations. We'll worry about it when Peter Capaldi leaves. <laughs> And there you have it. You've done some research here into this, uh, into oh, this I... regeneration business. <laughs> I wouldn't say research. I think I'm sort of making it up as I go along. I'm trying... <laughs> well, I'm doing what I'm, I'm trying to retrofit, you know, what's happened to, to establish fact. But anyway, no, season six, I just wanted to forget. Season seven, Asylum of the Daleks. 
I was tearing my hair out by this point. I was thinking, really? when are they going to give me something that I can connect with and love? And then Dinosaurs on a Spaceship came along. And it was the first time I'd really enjoyed Matt Smith since season five. I, I just really, really, I don't care the fact that it's a slight story. I don't mind that there are camp robots in it. I liked the Rupert Graves character. I thought he was almost channeling some Nicholas Courtney into his performance with his... You, you, well, reckless attitude towards guns and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I did like him. And of course, he became Lestrade in Sherlock. Well, actually, he would have been Lestrade at the time this was made. But he was less famous when they did this. Yeah. And, and as I say, the best Doctor Who villain, I, I definitely put Solomon in the top five human Doctor Who villains, I think. Because yeah, he was yeah. brilliant. Do you know, it's fascinating, though, because um, it's interesting that... Uh, you know, we sort of have our favourites in Doctor Who, but ones which we don't like, you know, we, we forget that other people might love them. Like, I, I, I never imagined that you would have said that this was your sort of stepping on point for Matt Smith. So, wow. it, yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that, you know, uh, there are, it takes different things for people to find their angle and way into things, and that... We shouldn't just assume, or, or I shouldn't just assume, I'm only speaking for myself, of course, that if I think it's great, everybody else thinks it's great. If I think it's rubbish, everybody else thinks it's rubbish. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's well, really the, interesting. You know, this wasn't a scary episode, was it? it with the best will no. in the world, it wasn't like the one we saw with the Mondasian Cybermen. It oh. didn't have that underpinning menace. It was a romp, but it was mm. a romp with a very dark underbelly and all of that came from the lead villain yeah yeah absolutely the, and yeah. i wish they could bring him back but i am assuming he got rather blown to pieces by the missiles the doctor set on him well there's there's always a way isn't it we could we could meet him before that happens couldn't we well we've got christmas coming up he's morphed yeah. you know it could be a big reveal maybe solomon's adopted the disguise of the first doctor in order to harm our hero well, now Who that knows? would be a script. Now, that, that would be that would yeah. be a spoiler if that turns out. I don't yeah, think it's, don't worry, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be fine. I, I, you know, just going back to the story though, you know, it, it's I do remember enjoying it at the time, and I, I certainly loved the, um, like you say, the romp because I love a good romp. You know, it's mm -hmm. great. You know, I, I love that, but I, I loved the when he was picking up this gang, you know, and the exoticness of it. And mm. I, I liked all of that, you know. It's just that, you say, the robots, I mean, it was so mm. derivative, you know. It right. just seemed, you know, oh. They reminded me a bit of Drathro from um, Mysterious Planet. Oh, If yes. he had a twin. <laughs> yeah, 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 there was that. And also, I've got in my notes here, you know, um, well, actually, when I was, I completely for I'd completely forgotten that it was actually a Silurian spaceship. Well, I was going to come on to the Silurians because it's their arc, isn't it? it They're is. actually saving creatures, and that's what the dinosaurs are doing on there in the first place. Yeah. So it's the fact that Solomon killed the Silurians that angers the Doctor so. Yeah, so he's obviously yeah. got a bit of repressed anger from 1970 from when the Brigadier blew them all up. Absolutely, yeah, because it's a lovely lead-in from, of course, the cave monsters, which we've just done. Absolutely, to, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I rather liked that, and I thought Chris Chipman has obviously put some real thought into, you know, that story and the consequences of it and what would have happened with the Silurians when they saw this approaching comet mm -hmm. as it was then, you mm -hmm. know, a meteor. And uh, I, I, I did like a lot of that. And um, I, like I say, you know, there was some nice direction. Um, I, I, I genuinely don't feel that it's a story that I want to watch again. I could watch the David Bradley scenes again. But right. But no, it, it doesn't strike me as one that I would reach for. So I'm sorry to be disappointed. But I can see with your enthusiasm and love for it, you've really counteracted what I've been saying. Well, I've tried my best. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing, I like the fact that Brian wasn't just there for the ride. He was mm. there because they needed 
to have people with the same DNA to work a piece of equipment. And I did... Do you remember when they was when they were changing the spaceship's course? Yes. And you yeah. needed members of the same family. And yeah. that's why Solomon couldn't turn the thing because he didn't have any kin uh, on board the ship. And I yeah. thought, and I did and I was coming back to Mark Williams. I know it's silly, but there's a scene at the yeah. end where he sort of gets an insight into Rory and Amy's world and he all he wants to see is the earth from space. Mm, and he sits yeah. with his legs dangling over the TARDIS, eating sandwiches. Yes. And looking down, and yeah. Rodell is looking up, probably from the past, and he's yeah. teamed up with Nefertiti. Yeah. So they, they, there's a spin-off series for Big Finish, if ever there was one. Well, we've had quite a few um, spin-off series <laughs> set up on me and Doctor Who over the years. But, you know, actually, um, I do remember that scene and being really touched by it with his, with his because his legs, he, he did this beautifully. He was like a little child, wasn't he? He was. He was kicking them and dangling them over. I, I loved that. Was, I, and he, I think... mm, he starts as a character of very sort of limited ambition. Mm. And he... The the trip, this one trip with the Doctor brings forward this revealed self who becomes a traveller and he sends them postcards from everywhere that he's mm. been. I just thought it was really, really nice stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it was nice to have another component in the Pond family relationship. Yeah. yeah. And if that makes me a big old soppy sausage, then fair enough. Oh, no. I'll, I, I'll take that one on the chin. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, no, I, I think um, it got me thinking just now, actually, when you mentioned that, because um, I do love these little scenes that we have in Doctor Who. Now, because in Classic Who, those little moments of um, connection like that, they happened quite rarely, didn't they, mm. I think? Whereas in New Who, it's a bit of a staple, really, isn't it? Mm. To get that emotion and humanity across. And they do it wonderfully. I mean, I, I do remember being thrilled by the... What was the one, I think, when Amy was floating outside the TARDIS with her hair going, she was looking around space. I can't remember the mm. story, but I remember the scene and thinking, isn't that lovely, you know? It's, a great, it's going back to the spirit of Doctor Who all the time, reminding mm. us what what it's about, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, no, no, the, the, that was a lovely scene. And one thing I'd like to ask, do you think then, David, that um, Chris Chibnall's um, writing, maybe the dialogue for Matt Smith's Doctor was good? Do you think he got it? Do you think he, he, he was I he thought was it was a very good performance from Matt Smith. Mm. I think, yes, I think the fact that he did... He moved from playful to sinister within the space of 45 minutes so well. That, that's got to be good writing, hasn't it? Mm, Do you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought, I, I was impressed with some of the lines. Um, mm. For example, when they were on the beach, um, as you mentioned, the Vietnam organ, uh, and uh, um, Rory's dad pulled out the trowel and started oh, digging. You know? <laughs> I remember. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, I quite like that. And I particularly thought when um, he said, uh, put it on your Christmas list or something like that, and, and Rory said, Dad, I'm whatever age, I don't have a Christmas Christmas list. And Matt Smith's doctor shouted across, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's lovely. That That's, that's getting it, isn't it? That's right. Mm. You know, so um, I, I did rather like that. Seeing the, the titles and hearing the title music, how does that strike you now after years of Capaldi's? Well, I actually found, I, I, I found myself weakly nostalgic for it. Me too. Bizarre, Me too. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Five years. and No, I, I think I, I liked that. Um, the, the theme music was excellent. I really loved that. And um, because I don't like the Capaldi one, I'm afraid. Right. That, 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 oh, what, what's the word for that weird... Um, oh, yes. It was like a zither. Yeah. Or perhaps oh. a stylophone. Oh, it's all... It's awful. very odd screechy yeah. noise anyway. Oh, it's so weak and then Doctor Who-ish. It's like, oh, how did, how did they put that through? Mm. But, and... Um, 
I, I don't like the the, the clock, um, you know, the, the clockwork ticking titles and so right. forth. I, I, I don't know. Whereas this, I did love. I love the, the orchestral music mm. of it. It's got the real Doctor Who feel to it. It's got power. It's got. I love that. And I love the titles, you know. Mm. Um, they're not my favourite Doctor Who titles of New Who, Um but I love the the, uh, the later Matt Smith ones, you know, where we have his face comes into it with the mm. stars. Mm. That's a fabulous title sequence. But mm. I just thought, poor Peter Capaldi, you know, he hasn't had a great title sequence. They should, for this upcoming Christmas special, his last one, give him a new theme tune, give him a new title sequence, mm. give him what he deserves, mm. you know, because we had such a powerful wonderful doctor with a weak jangly theme to it. It's just, oh it doesn't make sense played on a comb and paper yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yes uh, oh, it's made me feel better to think of dinosaurs in a spaceship now because after i finished watching it earlier i came away a little um feeling a bit sad at myself really because th- for thinking oh it didn't really perk me up and make me feel really enjoyable apart from a few moments you know and mm. but now i know that it's given yourself a fellow doctor who fan a real way into matt smith's doctor and it's something which obviously made you feel joyous at the time and uh, it's given you pleasure that's what doctor who's there for isn't it mm, we can't absolutely. all like this. we can't all like exactly the same things can we no so i no. think it makes me feel better about it now. Well, apparently, and I've not seen much of it myself, but apparently some fans are not entirely sold on the idea of a female Doctor. But we have to... Well, absolutely, but, you know, it's happened and we must embrace change. And if at the end of the day, you know, that does make some people love Doctor Who less, let's hope that, on the other hand, it makes other people love Doctor Who more so that the show can continue and continue. And we'll see, you know, where we go. But I know we had a specific podcast about the female Doctor, so I won't retread any of that material. But certainly regarding Dinosaurs of a Spaceship, I think my feelings towards Chris Chibnall are fairly positive, particularly positive because of Broadchurch, I have to say, which I thought was wonderful. And yes. my feelings about seeing David Bradley's performance again are mm. very positive too. Because, and I don't, and it seems, having said how positive I feel, it seems awful to then turn that around. And I was reading in a paper, and it was talking about David Bradley as the first doctor. And I was thinking, yeah, 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 what could be more fun? And then yeah. they used this quite spiteful form of words that said, Richard Herndl's best forgotten interpretation. And I was thinking, no, we loved Richard Herndl in 1983. It's a different interpretation to William Hartnell's interpretation. And David Bradley will be different again still because there seems to be something about the first Doctor that makes him recastable in a way that none of the others are. But I didn't like... It it saddened me that somebody had used the advent of David Bradley's performance to denigrate Richard Herndl, which I thought Mm. was a bit cruel and a bit unfair. Yes. But then I'm a hugely sensitive person, so what can I say? (laughs) Well, another hugely sensitive person actually has has made a comment about the the casting of the female Doctor. Somebody called... Christopher Eccleston. Really? And his words were yesterday, I believe this was actually, and he was uh, being interviewed mm-hmm. and he was asked what he thinks of the, it was on Radio 4's Loose Ends show. Right. And um, he was asked what his thoughts were on the, on the casting of the new Doctor and the quotation is, she's working class, she's northern, what can go wrong, he said. So, <laughs> well... <laughs> Because they appeared together at the National Theatre. They were in Antigone, weren't they? Antigone, yeah. Oh, they yes. appeared together. Right, And right. they both well, played that northern as well, but I'm pretty sure it was set in ancient Greece, but there you go. 
Well, this this is the thing you see with um, with accents, you know, and Doctor. It always strikes me we we both love Shakespeare, and of course. Um, People become, I always remember teaching, you know, and, and people having this perception of um, Shakespeare should be spoken with this particular type of, you know, received pronunciation, English and so forth. And, mm. of course, when Shakespeare's writing these, you know, he, he the people of a Roman, for example, you know, in Cleopatra or Northern African or Egyptian, of course, and of course they, they speak in, in English, in English accents, you know. It's like, what don't people get about the fact that this is an interpretation? Well, actually, you've semi-devastated me telling me it's all pretend. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't say, you know, this person is playing someone in a wheelchair, so we must have someone in a wheelchair. The person you know, who's in the wheelchair, should be given their part, you know, based on what they're bringing to the role as well, uh, you know. And that's what's something that I've always found with that, you know, with the accent and so forth. And I remember, though, um, Colin Baker at a convention once and talking about, um, I think it was when Christopher Eccleston had just started playing the Doctor. Mm. And um, they asked him what he thought of him, you know, having a northern accent and... Uh, and, and Colin Baker said, well, he said, I, I think it's fabulous. He said, but people sort of criticise us, you know, and I think he's talking about the older classic doctors. He said, but what you have to understand is if we, d-, he said, he, I think he's northern, isn't he? He's, his well, born accent. in London, but raised in Manchester. In Manchester, yes, yeah. And he said his accent, which he, he uses, isn't his real accent, he said, you know, but he said in those days... He would never have got a part if he hadn't had affected his accent. Right. So because that that's the way that it was. He said if he'd have walked in using his natural accent, he would never have got anywhere. Mm. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, to look at that? That uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful that we have in these uh, real uh, a real mixture of, of accents and uh, variety coming in now because. It, it, it's it's wonderful to hear. I mean, I always remember being shocked when um, um, a, a lecturer many years ago pointed out to me that, of course, Shakespeare was from um, around the Birmingham area and he would have probably spoken with a bit of a Brummie accent, wouldn't right. he? Right. Sorry, we've gone off on one now, David. Well, don't I... worry. Shall we, shall we pull it back and shall we... Yes. I'm going to let you go first with a score. Oh. I'm almost scared to ask you. Mean old nasty Greg now is going to give it a score, which I don't think you like, David, but we've got us because we find I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a six. (sighs) My score, because for the reasons I've said, because I think it's good fun with a sinister underbelly, Mm. because I loved Matt Smith's performance, because I loved David Bradley, because I loved Queen Nefertiti. And I loved Rupert Graves in it as well. And I loved Brian Williams in it. And I'm going to give it 8.5. Wow. Oh, that's, I mean, that's wonderful. That's what you want to hear. That's a really good score. And um, I'm sorry that I'm so miserable about it. Well, (laughs) you pick an episode of Doctor Who that we can watch and review for our next podcast so think of one that will really float your boat and we'll do it how about that okay are we talking classic doctor who or new we can talk about any doctor who because now we've got a big wait until christmas until we get some new material so let's travel back in time new who classic who whatever you want to talk about let's talk about it Wow, wow, that's that's really um ooh, you've you've taken me by surprise there, David. Mm. How about we go for a John Pertwee, because mm-hmm. we'd be mentioned it earlier. Mm. And I tell you what, one I'd love to appraise again, it was actually my oh my achingly loved favourite target novel, which was The Demons. However, when I watched it again on the latest DVD release, they did a beautiful job of recolorizing it, mm-hmm. I was a bit taken aback to see how nasty and abrupt John Pertwee was playing the when Doctor. When you said this last time when I, we spoke about the cave monsters. 
That's right. So, okay. For these occasional podcasts that we're going to do where we're going to look back on things and episodes and stories, I'm up for that. Let's do the demons. Brilliant. We'll do the demons. And, and please, if anybody's got any thoughts on what they think of the demons, send them in to us so we can, uh, we can put that into the podcast. And actually, David, we do have a competition to run. We have, with kind regards from BBC Audio, their latest release, which is Galaxy 4. Right. Yeah, now, we have a copy to give away in a competition. Right. Now, now you have to think of a good question. Some years back, an episode of Galaxy 4 was returned. It was episode 3 called Airlock. And what I want to know is... Can you name the film collector who returned Galaxy 4 Episode 3 Airlock to the BBC Archive? So that's the film collector who returned the one episode of Galaxy 4 that we have to the BBC Archive. That's a fabulous question. And one answer only is what people are getting. You know, There's one copy of this to, to give away. So it's the first person to send in the correct answer. So, David, um, it's been it's been a bit of an up-and-down journey on this one, isn't it? It Thanks has, of, but it's, yeah. it's been fun to look back into an old episode of Doctor Who. I'm exactly. really enthusiastic about looking at the demons again. I haven't seen it in years. No, me neither. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But and it's I, good that we've got such a rich seam of Doctor Who that we can mine whilst we await the arrival of the next... Christmas special and the subsequent season. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target. Or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.